There are a couple of gentlemen that are going around. If you did not get a handout and you would like one for the lesson this morning, they'll pass those to you. If you have your Bible with you, would you open it up and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we'll be uh, this morning. Uh, that'll be the first scripture at which we will look. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16 beginning. Uh, we're going to have three main scriptures this morning, but that will be the first of those three. Words have meaning, and how we define words matters. Words carry thoughts, and if they are carrying the wrong thoughts, then I'm going to draw the wrong conclusions and make the wrong applications in my life if I misunderstand what the words mean. And what often happens is that words are defined to make them say what we want them to say or what someone else wants them to say. Uh, as many of you know, I was in speech and debate in college, and the first thing you do in any debate, after stating your proposition or the thing that you're debating or arguing about, is that you look at the words that are in that proposition, and, and the team that is in the affirmative, the team that is saying, yes, we agree with this proposition, they define what the words in that proposition mean. And a lot of times, there is some vagueness to a term, so that so that you define it in terms that, that most agree with your side, where you can take this definition and it helps you to win the argument. But still, even with vagueness, words have meaning. And you can't arbitrarily assign them meanings that they don't have. There was one specific occasion where uh, my debate partner and I, we were debating this other team, and the proposition included the word teenagers. Teenagers, right? And so they get up and they're defining the terms of this proposition and they said, now we're going to define teenagers to mean everyone between the ages of 17 and 22. Teenagers are people between the ages of 17 and 22. And they defined it that way because the, the data was going to help their cause if they could skew the data to look at just people ages 17 to 22. So what did we do when we get up? We say... We don't accept your definition for teenagers. And they said, well, why not? We said, because it's teenagers. It's those people that are from ages 13 to 19, right? And I'm afraid sometimes we do that with things that, that matter a little bit more. We do that even in the midst of a religious context. But words still have meaning, and we can't just change them to make them mean what we want them to mean. Let me give you an example. What about this word, judgmental? A lot of times that is misdefined as to make any judgment about anyone or anything as being wrong. If you say anything is wrong, then you're just being judgmental. You can't judge me, people say. Uh, they maybe quote from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. And so Christians shouldn't judge people. Is that really what this word means in a religious context? Well, it ignores the fact that the very same passage in Matthew chapter 7 calls us as citizens of Christ's kingdom to make judgments on our sinning brothers and sisters. But Jesus says don't be hypercritical or hypocritical in doing so because God is going to judge you in the same way that you judge others. The, the manner by which you judge, God will judge you in return. 
And maybe we think about people, you know, on the internet or uh, people who don't know their Bible very well doing this sort of thing. But people who know a lot can do it too. Uh, What about this word, sin? There are a number of different definitions we might give for sin. There are a number of uh, definitions that we could give biblically, looking at different passages. But there was a, uh, a doctor of theology who misdefined sin as, quote, the culpable disturbance of shalom. Well, that sounds smart, doesn't it? His concept of sin was, if you harm anyone's peace, shalom, the Jewish word for peace, if you harm anyone's peace, then you are committing a sin. And as long as you don't disturb anyone else's peace, then you're not sinning. Well, that sounds impressive, maybe, but is that really what it means? My question is, Show me the scripture that defines sin like that, and I'll accept your definition. But I don't think there's a scripture like that to be found. But perhaps there is no word where this concept of defining it the way we want to define it, there is no word where this is more true than the word we will discuss this morning. That word is Christian. I was recently asked by one of our members, have you ever preached a lesson on what a Christian is? Um, And I apologize in advance, sweet sister. Uh, The sarcastic side of me in my mind said, yeah, like every Sunday I do that. That's my job to preach about what a Christian is. But in asking that question, she was really asking this. You know, people define that word Christian in all sorts of different ways. People who wear the name Christian, people who don't wear the name Christian, they define it the way they want it. So, So have you preached a lesson that defines what that word means? Um, And I've preached lessons like this, but that's where this lesson really originated uh, as we think about it. Um, Recently, I was watching a video where a self-described atheist non-Christian, in this interview, they said, well, to me, a real Christian is, and they gave their definition. And I thought in watching that, I said, you already admitted you don't believe in God and you're not a Christian and you're going to define for everybody else what a real Christian is? What gives you the right to do that? But even more, even though I'm a Christian, even though I'm a preacher of the gospel, what gives me the right to define the word Christian If we wear Christ's name, we should at least know what that name means as he defines it. Not as I define it, not as you define it, all due respect, but the way Christ defines this word that is based on his name. A Christian, someone who wears the name of Christ. And I believe that if we look to our Bibles The Bible gives us a clear definition of what this concept, what this word Christian really means. And that's what I want for us to consider for the rest of our time this morning. Christ's definition is the only one that matters. How does the Bible define Christian? And this is not just a lesson for those non-Christians out there who are trying to define us in terms that Christ does not. It's for all of us who wear the name of Christ. Am I the kind of Christian that Jesus identifies as one of his? You might be surprised to learn that that word Christian is only used three times in all of our Bibles. 
three times the word Christian is used. It's used here in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16. Uh, we're going to look at the greater context of this passage here in just a second. But the, the verse says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Acts 11 and verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And then in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, um, I know this is not an order as it appears in the Bible, but this is the order we'll examine these this morning. Uh, this is Agrippa, who is from a Jewish background, and he's talking to the Apostle Paul, and he says to him after Paul gives his sermon or his defense of uh, why he's being imprisoned at this time, Agrippa says to him, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at these three passages. And I believe if we do, we can see what it is that a Christian is as defined by God. So if you're there in 1 Peter chapter 4, let's read beginning in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. Would you read with me? 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first. Now, who is Peter talking about there when he says us? Us who are Christians, right? Those who suffer as a Christians. And he identifies this as part of the house of God. This judgment is going to begin with us first, those who are part of the house of of God, We might say part of Christ's church, uh, his house, right, his body, the universal church. We're talking about Christians, those who are part of Christ's house. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So again, I think we get some insight there, right? So those who are part of the house of God are contrasted with those who do not obey the gospel of God. Well... A Christian, then, is someone who has obeyed the gospel versus those who have not obeyed the gospel. Those are the ones who are not Christians, not part of the house of God. Now, that's interesting uh, because there are lots of people, uh, lots of people in the religious world who say the gospel is just something you have to become aware of. It's just good news, right? That's, that's the way that word is translated. That's what that word means, gospel. And yet we see here that the gospel, and not just in this verse, a number of other in the New Testament, the gospel is not just good news you become aware of, it's good news that tells you things that you must do in order to obey, right? And so to be a Christian, you have to obey this gospel. So verse 18, um, he quotes from the book of Proverbs and says, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Um, so if you were in my junior high class in the back on the book of Proverbs, uh, this is one of the ways that we see that the, the poetry of Proverbs works, right? He makes a contrast between one thing and then the opposite thing. So what is the one thing and the opposite thing that we find in verse 18 as Peter is quoting it? Well, we see that there are those who are righteous, who are going to be saved, but there's also the ungodly, we might say unrighteous, who are sinners who are not going to be saved. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. It doesn't mean that a Christian isn't one who has sinned or is a sinner, but this is someone who has been made righteous and now is saved, and they are out of that sin. Not that they ever sin, but they don't live this life of sin. 
Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. So we commit ourselves, if we're Christians, to the will of God. That means that we act according to the will of God, that God is the one who has authority over our lives. We follow someone else's will. And the very last phrase there, we've committed our souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. So we're involved in well-doing and good-doing, but it's as defined by our Creator. It's according to His will. It's not well-doing as defined by man, you know, I think this is the right thing to do. No, I'm a Christian. So that means I'm doing good as it's defined by God. We have a faithful creator who has defined these things for us. Righteousness, saved, ungodly sinner, doing good. He defines what good is. And so what God says is good is good and good for us. And that is the only thing that is important. Does God call this good? And yet, woe to us, as Isaiah says, when we start calling evil good and good evil. Have we seen that in our society? Have we seen that in our society where they take the things of God that God says are good and says, no, these things are evil. And the things that God says are evil, they say these things are good. It's the culpable disturbance of shalom. We are disturbing someone else's peace. If we're going to wear the name of Christian, we have to be defining things as God defines them. Doing good as our Creator defines good. Doing His will according to His directions. And again, the problem is when people want to take the things the Bible says and then give them their own definition. I, I think a great example of this is found in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. You're going to define who God is? God is love, we might say. God is light, God is just, all those other things. But God is love, and we know that. And love is one of those words that is very vague, a word that we can define in lots and lots of ways. And yet that word is foundational for what a Christian is and what a Christian is called to be. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning, um, let's begin in verse 35. We remember that there is a, a lawyer, verse 35, one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, ask him a question and he's testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the greatest command, maybe your translation says? And Jesus is going to give him uh, two for the price of one. He's going to give him the two greatest commands. Jesus said to him, number one, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the two greatest commands, according to Jesus, in the law, and this carries forth into the new covenant that we're a part of, the two greatest commands, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Why isn't that all that God says? I mean, Jesus went around preaching everywhere. We have a couple of his sermons. We think about the Sermon on the Mount, right? It, it takes about 15, 20 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount from start to beginning. In all likelihood, Jesus was answering questions along the way. In all likelihood, this is a summary given by, the, by, by Matthew, the prophet. Why wasn't this all Jesus said? 
if, this, if these are the two greatest commandments. And, and not only that, he says, verse 40, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. It's all summed up in these two phrases. Love God, love your neighbor. If that's all there is, why isn't that all he said? It would have been much shorter that way, right? I mean, this giant book could have been a, a placard we just put on the wall. I mean, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because the law and the prophets were still hanging, hear that, on these two commands. The law and the prophets served to define what it means to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of these other things that Jesus said, they define what it means for a Christian to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And often we see love manifested in ways that are, that are surprising to some others. We think about maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and all of the descriptions of love that are found in that passage. Uh, some we expect, right? But others, perhaps we see them, we say, is, is that what love really is? From, from uh, that same passage, I want us to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is the chapter that talks about the need to, to judge. To judge someone who is in your group who is involved in ongoing sin. They're not repenting of that sin even when people come to them about it. And they're acting like they're still a faithful Christian even though they're involved in, in this case, in 1 Corinthians 5, it was illicit sexual sin. And they're like, I'm still a Christian, everything's fine even though I'm in this sin. Well, we remember what Jesus said, right, in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Even that is surprising to some people that love includes commandment keeping. But the commandment in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is you need to withdraw yourself from this one. And he even goes so far as to say, you know, what have I to do with judging those who are outside in the world? Don't be judgmental toward them, but you have a responsibility to judge your brother or sister who is in sin. Why? Because you love them. And you want to snatch them out of the grasp of Satan to bring them back to Christ. And that's exactly what happened with this brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When they withdrew from him and said, we can't have fellowship with you if you're in this sin, apparently this brother came back to the Lord in repentance and made things right. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? You can read that on your own, 3 through 11. It is summed up in this. He says, you need to reaffirm your love to this brother. Why reaffirm? Because they've already affirmed it. They have loved in deed and in truth by fulfilling the command of God to withdraw their fellowship. Now the world looks at that, some people who wear the name Christian look at that and say, that's too harsh, that's too mean, but what it ought to be is love. This is real love or a manifestation of real love as defined by God. And it's not the only one, it's a big book, there's lots of stuff that tells us how we're supposed to love one another and how we're supposed to love God. But if we're a Christian, we're involved in well-doing as defined by Him, not as defined by man. And we know, if you turn over to Galatians uh, chapter 1, we know that there are, in fact, perverted gospels. As much as sometimes we want to pretend like there aren't, as much as it would be easier to just say, anyone who says, I'm a Christian, we accept as a Christian, and it's all good, 
What Paul says is there are those who preach a different gospel. And, and they're preaching a gospel saying this is from Jesus. This is the good news when in fact it is not. Galatians chapter 1. Read with me beginning in verse 6. I marvel, he says, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So it's still supposed to be, quote-unquote, the good news, the gospel of Christ, but there are some who are perverting it. And so he says in verse 8, that even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven, Preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. Anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that which we have received, let him be accursed. Or do I now persuade men or God, he says? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Um, I put through verse 8 on the PowerPoint If we go all the way through verse 10 and read that, what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, I'm not here to define things the way you want to define them. I'm not here to please men. I'm here to please God. And if we wear this name Christian, that has to describe us. We are here to please God. They had redefined who Christ was and what it was to be a Christian. And sadly, there are many today who do exactly the same thing. They redefine who Christ is and what it means to be a Christian. If we're going to be a Christian, we have to be the kind of Christian that is described in 1 Peter chapter 4. But that's not our only passage. Turn over to Acts chapter 11, if you would. Acts chapter 11. Let's go back to verse 20 to get the context here in Acts 11. I hope with that first point you see what we're doing. Um, So we'll speed it up a little bit and uh, go through these passages to see how it's defined. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. You read with me. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So, it's someone who believes. Believes what? Believes the preaching of the Lord Jesus. Uh, If you want to mark your spot in Acts chapter 11, turn back just a few pages to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, Philip, who is inspired of the Holy Spirit, he meets this Ethiopian man in a chariot. And in verse 35 it says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. That's what we believe. We believe the preaching about Jesus. And and if we keep reading, what happens? Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he believed this preaching, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. So we're a believer in the preaching of the Lord Jesus. That's what what this Ethiopian believed. Go back to Acts chapter 11. Let's keep reading. 
A great number believed and turned to the Lord. So it's one who has turned to the Lord. In one word, what do you call turning away from sin and turning to the Lord? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask. What do you call it? Repentance, right? So he repented. He believed. Uh, he repented. This is what a Christian is. Uh, keep reading verse 22. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So a Christian is someone who has received the grace of God versus someone who has rejected that grace that God is offering. And it's someone, he says, this is a common phrase in the book of Acts, one who continued with the Lord. So it's not just a one-time event. I believe, maybe even I repent, maybe even I'm baptized, but I don't continue. I, 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 I go astray. No, he's admonishing them, encouraging them to continue with the Lord. Verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So a Christian is someone who is added to the Lord. Again, this is the idea of being part of the Lord's body, being part of the house of God, the church of God, the, the universal church, and all Christians everywhere, right? So they're not added to some human institution that's somehow a mediator between Christ and His church and and then maybe local churches. No, they're just added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed from Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So there is this uh, one who assembles with the church. Well, that's that local church in Antioch, right? So Christianity, being a Christian, is not something that you can do just on your own. It's something that you need other people in order to do. You're part of a local church. And then finally, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples. So a Christian is someone who is a disciple of Christ. And a disciple is just someone who follows a teaching and someone who follows the teacher who does that teaching. It is an apprentice. I heard it defined not too long ago. So can we be a Christian and not follow the teaching of Christ and His Word about all of these aspects? Can we be a follower of Christ and not follow Him? Is another way of asking that. No. A Christian is a disciple, a follower. And so to be a Christian, we have to follow Christ. And yet there are some, even some who say there are Christians who, who don't follow what we find in this passage. They say there's no turning in repentance. Live like you want. God's grace will just take care of it. But isn't it interesting, back in verse 23, they saw the grace of God. And how did they see that grace? They saw it in those who turned to the Lord in repentance. That's how and with whom it was manifested. There are some today who say you don't have to continue with the Lord. You know, once you're saved, you're always saved. There's no continuing that you have to do. You can't be lost. There are some who say, well, not only do you have to not be a member of the New Testament church. You don't have to be a member of any church. You can just be a Christian and do your thing on your own. You don't have to be part of a church. Or, you know, being a member of this human organization between the church and the local church, that'll ensure you're right with God. You wear this other name in addition to Christian and, and that shows that you're right. You're part of the right people. 
Well, that's a middleman invented by us. We can be just Christians by just being part of Christ's church. And God has the right to tell us how to become right with Him. We are His disciples, so we follow His teaching. And we must follow all of His teaching. Many want to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they like, maybe the ones that conform to the lifestyle that they're already living. But that's not the way it works. Even many who claim to be Christians do that. Do we? A follower of Christ must follow Christ, must follow all of his teaching. We are disciples, apprentices, trying to become like him and carry on his teaching. We know the concept as expressed in James chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, that picking and choosing is, is not the way it works, not with a relationship with Christ. Beginning in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, if you really do, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Well, that implies that you might not really fulfill that. You might say you are, but you're not. But if you show partiality, this is one example, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged, not by the law of Moses, but by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our need for compassion and love is seen specifically in this passage of... Not showing partiality. And so what he's saying is, you can't say, well, I love, I love my neighbor and then show partiality. You're, you're guilty of not loving, even if you love in a bunch of other ways. And the example he gives is saying, well, I haven't committed adultery, so I haven't sinned when you've murdered someone. No, just because you haven't done one thing and you've done something else, you're still guilty if you don't make that right. That's what he's saying. Um, I think there are lots of applications that we could make here. Let me just make one. I believe that homosexual behavior is sinful. But I don't stop there. I believe the Bible teaches that sexual activity in marriage is a great blessing. I teach that too because that's what the Bible teaches. That God designed the sexual relationship to flourish in this specific environment for which he intended it. And I believe that the Bible teaches in that context that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. That means adultery is sinful, fornication is sinful, and even sexual acts without contact like lust or immodesty or sensuality, those are sinful. And yet sometimes we treat those other sins as not as bad as homosexuality, to our shame. They're all sin. And they can all be forgiven when someone comes to Christ. Furthermore, I would take it a step further that we are reaping what we have sown as a society by redefining biblical God-approved marriage as just, well, anything between one man and one woman, ignoring adultery or fornication or divorce without cause of adultery, 
Well, if we've redefined what God defines as marriage, then, then why shouldn't it just be redefined as between a man or a man and a woman and, or a woman? My point is, once we leave the biblical definition, it doesn't really matter. It's not how God defined it. So what difference does it make? And I, I know, I understand that we can go further and further from God's plan. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying one misdefinition of what God says is just as sinful as another. Amen? And so what's the solution? Is the solution to throw up our hands and say, well, let's just accept everything then? Or is the solution to come back and define things the way God defines them? I was reading an article recently. Boy, I'm hitting the hot topics right now, I guess. Um, And this article was making a scriptural case for women pastors and elders. So this is someone who's uh, a believer, and they say, this is what the Bible teaches, and I believe that women can serve in this capacity as pastors and elders. And when the author got to the qualifications for pastors that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he made the case that we're taking the phrase that's found in that chapter, the husband of one wife, which implies what? It's a man, right? He says we're taking that too literally to mean that a pastor must be a man. And then he used some other examples from the text to make his point. He says, for example, do we take this literally? Must all overseers have their own household with children? Well, we might talk about what exactly that means to have a household or what children means. But you know what my answer is to that? Yes. Because that's what 1 Timothy chapter 3 teaches. That's what's found in that chapter. And in fact, you know what these things in, in, in quotation marks are? That's things that he's taken from the text itself. This argument only works because so many who say they're Christians have said a pastor or overseer doesn't have to have a household, a wife, Or children. Yeah, he's got to be a man, but he doesn't have to have these other things. So if a pastor can be a single man without wife or without children, even though 1 Timothy 3 says that he should, then why does he even have to be a man? That's the reasoning. And you know what? That reasoning is sound if we reject these other things. Again, I highlight, once we leave the biblical definition, it doesn't really matter, right? We can accept what we want and dismiss what we want. But Jesus calls us to accept all that he says. Not just some of what he says, all of what he says. When Christ calls us, we have to submit ourselves totally to him. We have to give up our own think-sos, our own desires to follow him. We cannot pick and choose the things we want to do and the things that we don't. And and please hear me clearly on this. This is not just some arbitrary thing. What God gives us, whether we understand it or not, is for our good always. Is God gracious and loving and merciful? Can I hear your head rattle? Yes. Does God want what is best for us? Yes. Does God know better than we do? Yes. So why shouldn't I just do what God says? As best I understand it. And I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. Please don't misunderstand that. 
But when I see what it is that God says, to the very best of my ability, that's what I should strive to do. Because a Christian is a disciple, and I'm a Christian. All right, one final passage, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. There's much more that I could say, but let's just say this. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 27. Again, Paul is before King Agrippa from a Jewish background. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God. That not only you, but also all who hear me today might be both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these change. I don't wish everybody was a prisoner, but I wish everybody was what? A Christian. That's what I wish. That's what I desire. And so a Christian is someone who believes the preaching about Jesus. Paul did. Paul wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. Notice what Christ told him in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. Just turn back a few pages. Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. After he appears to him on the road to Damascus, and Paul is there, verse 6, trembling and astonished, and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Here's what you must do to be right with me, to be my follower, my disciple. And we see in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Ananias comes to him, he preaches Jesus to him, he says, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You have to call on the name of the Lord, you have to have your sins washed away in baptism. So it's someone who believes the the preaching about Jesus, as Paul was doing to Agrippa. It is someone who is persuaded to become a follower of Christ. Almost you persuade me to become a Christian. There is an intellectual element to faith. It's not blind. It's not even short-sighted. It is something that must be believed and understood. There is persuasion that must happen. And our goal, our spiritual goal, is to persuade people to stop living the way that they are in sin and become a true follower of Christ. To persuade them to obey the same gospel that Paul obeyed because that's how you become a Christian. So what was it that Paul did to obey? He was persuaded and he was told what to do in order to be right with Christ. What did he do? Well, if you're still there in Acts chapter 9, notice in verse 18. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And what did Paul have to say about this? One last passage, Romans chapter 6, and the lesson will be yours. This same apostle Paul said, Or do you not know that as many as us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. This is what happened to Paul. He walked in newness of life. 
He was 180 degrees different from who he was before because he had turned from sin and turned to the Lord in repentance. We have all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the amassing of good things will not atone for that sin. Only Christ's blood, by grace, can atone for sins. And the blood of Christ cleanses us, as we talked about a moment ago, when we obey the gospel. That's not my teaching, that's Christ's. That's not what, to me, it means to be a Christian, but it's what, to Christ, it means to be a Christian. His definition. And isn't His definition the only one that matters? And so my... My final question this morning is simple. Are you a Christian? Not as somebody else defines it. Not as you define it. As Christ defines it in His Word. Are you a Christian? You can become one right now. Are you living as a Christian? Are you continuing in the Lord? Because that's what a Christian has to do. If not, it's not too late to turn back and continue with the Lord. And if we can help you to do that, Won't you come now while together we stand and while we sing?